Good morning. My name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here. I get to share this morning from Hebrews, and we are coming to a close, which is kind of sad, right? I love this book. I love what we've learned as we've gone along. Um, it's, it's extremely enjoyable and extremely informative. And now as we're coming to the end of the book, like everything that's come before, all these comparisons that we've come before about uh, old covenant, new covenant, why Jesus is better than everything, now they're kind of coming to a head, right? And what we get in here is a little bit of a warning, right? We've seen these before in the book of Hebrews, these warnings that pop up and they kind of catch us off guard because we would think, well, I mean, right, so Jesus is great and we love Jesus, so why keep warning us about making mistakes? Why are there still consequences if we're with Jesus? Well, for some of the background, let's remember that the author of Hebrews, God was sending this message to a group of people who weren't all in the same place, right? Some of them were hesitating on this. They were uh, being tempted to go back to old things and forsake Jesus because Jesus was kind of giving them problems, right? The persecution that they were enduring was primarily because of their allegiance to Jesus. So the author of Hebrews is trying to encourage them, look, don't go backwards. Like, stay with Jesus. Things are hard now, and they may continue to be hard, but don't give up what you have in Christ. Don't forsake what you have in Christ. So he gives them a warning, another warning. And as I was looking through this passage, I thought, you know, what are some warnings that we may receive in our lifetime, and, and why do people give us warnings? The warning that stuck with me the most through my life is a weird warning. My grandma <clears throat> used, to tell, used to tell me and her other grandchildren, don't play with fire, you'll wet the bed. Have, has anybody ever heard that before? Isn't that an odd warning? You would, you would assume that the warning of playing with fire would be, don't play with fire, you might get burned. My grandma was, don't play with fire, you wet the bed. Now, of course, that didn't keep me from playing with fire because I'm like, well, it seems like a relatively uh, low consequence for burning things. So let's just, let's get at it and see what happens, right? And uh, first service, I told a story of when I finally decided I shouldn't play with fire was when I was a teenager. All, most of the youth in our church have probably heard this story before, but uh, I decided I was going to pour gasoline on an already going barrel fire at, at our house. Boy, don't do that, because that's, that's a bad idea. It shoots right up into the gas tank, and then it, what ensued was kind of, you know, you ever seen Wile E. Coyote? It's very similar to that. Um, that's when I learned, oh, Grandma's warning was not nearly as serious as it should have been. It should have been, don't play with fire. You might burn your house down while your parents are gone. So, <clears throat> but don't wet the bed, and that never stopped me, right? The, the warning in and of itself, or the degree of the warning, is really important because it helps us understand uh, not only what we need to be afraid of, but what we might be missing, like, right? Like, what are the consequences? But also, what are we missing? And that's what the author of, do, of Hebrews is doing right here. This section is actually going to rev uh, revisit the whole theme of Hebrews, of the book of Hebrews. Now, remember, <clears throat> the whole book of Hebrews is a treatise on Jesus as the fulfillment of all that we see in the Old Testament. When we're given direct examples of important points in the Old Testament, we're ultimately meant to ask the question, how does Jesus fulfill this point 
or fulfill this promise. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. That's what God's trying to get us to understand. Old covenant, new covenant. Right? It's not like we throw away the old covenant, but the old covenant is fulfilled in Christ in the new covenant in His blood. That's what we're supposed to remember. <clears throat> and so today the warning is really summed up, don't miss the kingdom. Right? Don't, don't miss out on the kingdom. There's a better kingdom that God has created here. Don't miss it. And in order for the author, in order for God to help us understand why we shouldn't miss it, he's going to take us to where we were, and then he's going to remind us where we are, and then he's going to remind us what's coming. He's going to bring the warning with that. But first, let's, as God's people, let's not forget where we were, where we were as God's people. And so this is uh, the author of Hebrews is saying of, of the Israelites. So he said, don't, you are not here. So look at verse 18. You have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. He says, you're not here. This is not your destination. Right? This is Old Covenant, Old Sinai. You know, when the Israelites come out of Egypt and they're in Sinai and God is going to give them the law and he's going to consecrate them and he's going to reveal his presence. He's going to show his presence to the Israelites what we have here is this reminder to these Christians, this is not where you're at. As the Israelites left Egypt, they were wandering, right? They were looking for a home that God has pro had promised to them. And they ended up wandering because of their disobedience for a lot longer than they should have. But what they ultimately missed wasn't so much as where they were, but that God was with them, right? That's what they were missing they were so concerned with where they were going, they didn't realize that for God to be with them was the, the big deal. It was the presence of God in their midst that established their identity and established their future. And so in 18, he says, you have not come to what could be touched. You're not at Old Sinai. But he wants to show them what was at Old Sinai. What did that represent? So look at some of the strong language that's used here. A blazing fire, darkness, gloom, storm, blast of a trumpet, sound of words, right? He, he's trying to emphasize this was not like a party, right? This was serious. There was gravity to this. You have not come to what could be touched, to a fire, to darkness, gloom, storm, the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words. This is a bleak picture presented of the Israelites when they're faced with the presence of God. And look at the, the parenthetical, right? In verse 19, uh, to the blast of the trumpet, the sound of words, those who heard it begged that not another word would be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. I mean, it was so bad, so bad that the Israelites were like, please, we can't, we, can't, we don't even want to hear directly from God. We don't want to hear. Please speak through Moses. Don't speak to us. Now, this is taken directly from Exodus 19. And I would encourage you, um, outside of our time here this morning, to go read Exodus 19, 20, 21, because it's fascinating what you see unrolling there, right? When God was preparing to bring his presence to the mountain and to speak through Moses to the Israelites. Now, what we might think at first glance to be an awesome thing, man, wouldn't it be great if God would just like show everybody his presence? Turns out it may not be great, right? It's especially if, if you're not right with God, <clears throat> What would have been an awesome thing to, to think about turns out as a terrifying thing for sinful people with weak hearts, right? In, in order to really stand in the presence of God, something 
really important has to happen. There has to be a change in our sinfulness. We have to be righteous. We have to be clean to stand in front of God, which is even what Moses does with the people. He cleanses them, and they, for three days, can't even prepare to be around the mountain waiting for the presence of God. Right? They couldn't bear what was commanded. They didn't want to hear from God because the command was, if even an animal touches the mountain, it has to be stoned. Okay? So if anybody like, went past the boundaries and just touched the mountain of the presence of God, you had to kill them from a distance because if you went, you would have to die too. I mean, God is so holy that basically if anybody got close, you'd have to have like basic snipers in the camp to keep the camp from being polluted. That's how holy God's presence was. If an animal or person even touched the mountain on which his presence was sitting, others would have to kill them. <clears throat> and this emphasizes the reality. What the author is doing here is emphasizing the reality of the distance between a holy God and a sinful earthly people. Right? There is a distance. There's a distance between sinful man and holy God. It's the whole point of the, the introduction of Scripture in the Old Testament. And even Moses, look at what Moses said, verse 21, the appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling. Moses, of whom the Bible says, was one who talked to God face to face as a friend. Moses, who was the mediator for the Israelites, he was terrified and trembling. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, he He's mentioning, remembering that. He says, I was terrified and trembling. <clears throat> so even the one called to mediate to God for the people was acutely aware of God's holiness and his own frailty, and he was appropriately terrified. So it's a bleak picture, right? The old Sinai, being there in the presence of God when you are in your sin. You see, the Israelites preferred not only to stay at a distance, but also not even to hear directly from God as a result of the shame and the fear that their own sin and frailty carried. Because they knew, when they heard that command, nobody can touch the mountain, they immediately realized, I can't get close to God without dying because I'm sinful. Right? And, and when you realize that, it's shocking and, and it's disorienting. When we, as, as human beings, when we focus on the reality of our own sin versus the holiness of God, the appropriate reaction is to attempt to hide ourselves from Him. And if you don't think that's accurate, go to Genesis. What's the response once Adam and Eve fall into sin? They're not like, oh, sorry, God. They're, we got to get away. We got to hide. We got to cover ourselves. And then God comes looking for them. Hey, where are you at? You know, what, is, what did Adam say? I hid because I was afraid. I hid because I was afraid. The appropriate response to the holiness of God for sinful people is to be fearful and to hide ourselves from Him, which is what we see at Sinai. And one of the main points of the book of Hebrews is this. We can't bear our own sin before a holy God. It's not possible. Christ is the only one who can bear it, and Christ has bore it on our behalf. That's what we've been told all through this book. In Exodus 20, 20, we see this, right? As we're going along in, in the book of Exodus 19 and 20, <clears throat> Moses says to the people this, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. 
And that's really interesting because Moses doesn't say, hey, don't be afraid. He says, don't be afraid from an earthly perspective because the reason that God is, is testing you is so that the fear of him might be before you so that you might not sin, right? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of your own frailty. Don't be afraid of your own sin. Don't be afraid of the consequences themselves. Be afraid of God so that it motivates you to live for him, right? It's do not fear, but fear. Like, don't, don't be afraid in a destructive way, but be afraid in a constructive way is what Moses says. And in the book of Hebrews, there's a recurring theme. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. But there's also another recurring theme. God has not changed. We tend to think of Old Testament God, New Testament God as like good, a bad cop, good cop, right? Like Yahweh, Old Testament, is like anger, 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 wrath, wrath, wrath. And then good guy Jesus shows up and he's like, just kidding. Everything's cool, right? But that's not what Scripture presents to us. Right? The author of Hebrews never tries to lessen the holiness of God, but he emphasizes just how great Christ is that we may now come before God in relationship without fear of death. But remember, that was God's plan, God the Father, the plan to send God the Son to die on our behalf. So the same God that struck terror into the hearts of the Israelites was the God that was planning all along to bring people close to him in the Son, Right? So in, in this case, the fear of God's holiness is a good thing, but that's not where we're stuck, is what he says. The point was, in the Old Covenant, you could never come before God without intercession. You can either be purified by a sacrifice or you face death. And the author says in 1031 in the book of Hebrews, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing, right? To fall into the judgment, to the hands of judgment of the living God. And in order to understand the gravity and joy of a relationship with God, we have to understand the gravity and the terror of being in broken relationship with God. The background of God's holiness and our sinfulness, the author of Hebrews even says, is the way in which we appreciate what Christ has done. We appreciate the new covenant in Christ's blood. We appreciate that it's no longer sacrifice, 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 on sacrifice, on sacrifice, do better, do better, do better, you know, complete the law, complete the law. But now in Christ, Christ says, done. It's been done. Now we have access to God. Now, all of us, right, think about the people at Sinai. Let's just think about that. Think about being there around the mountain. And there's this cloud and thunder and lightning and this big booming voice and trumpets coming out of nowhere. Like nobody around you is blowing these trumpets. There are these heavenly trumpets that are echoing throughout the sky. How terrifying. <laughs> How terrifying would that be? And now think about this. These weren't just adults. These were the whole camp of Israel. There were kids there. Anybody have kids that are scared of thunderstorms? Like times that by a thousand and then try to console that kid when there's smoke on the mountain and there's lightning and thunder and a voice that's booming like a trumpet and getting louder and louder and louder and louder and louder. Terrifying, right? Terrifying for everyone. The tempest when God made his presence known on the mount. <clears throat> and then consider that it was a miracle that anybody could survive that encounter except by the grace of God. And that's kind of the point. But he says, look, you're not there right? Remember, you're not here. Let's remember where we are. Let's remember the holiness of God. Let's keep that in the back of our minds 
And now he says, okay, so you're not there. You're not in that place of relationship of terror and fear if you're in Christ, right? Hebrews, listen, you're there. You're, you're, not, you're not there, right? You're here. And that's where he moves to this. Don't miss where we are. So don't forget where we were. We were in a relationship with God where we should have, you know, we should fear. If you're left in your own sin, if you're at Old Sinai in the Old Covenant, you are terrified, like you are scared. You see His holiness and you realize this is serious business. But saints, don't miss where you are now, right? And, and what's coming, sort of, the already not yet. But don't miss where we are, which is New Zion. And this is what we see in verses 22 through 24. Now, there's a lot in here. <clears throat> I'm going to do my best to unpack this as quickly as I possibly can. Instead, <clears throat> verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion. Believer, brother and sister in Christ, listen, you're no longer in a relationship of terror with the living God. This is what the author has been trying to communicate. I can't say that enough. That's not where you are. You aren't in the terror of facing a holy God in your sin. Because if you're in Christ, you're not in your sin. You are in the joy of knowing the living God in new relationship in which we can draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, which the author shows us in 1022, right? God tells us in 1022, draw near. There are a number of statements made here meant to help us understand what is new about our relationship to God through what Christ has accomplished, right? So there's this warning to us not to forget what our reality is now and to come, and it's a change in tone. It actually feels a little bit liturgical as we, as we read through it, but there are a few new things that we get that we're meant to draw our eyes to, and so we're going to unpack these in these few verses. <clears throat> First of all, <clears throat> We are in a place where we have a new home, a new home. It's called the city of the living God, verse 22. You've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, in parentheses, the heavenly Jerusalem. Mount Zion was the resting place. If you're wondering, like, okay, so why is it Sinai to Zion? Zion was the resting place under David of the Ark of the Covenant, which was the presence of God, right, with, with the people in the wilderness. It rested on Mount Zion, and you see that in 2 Samuel chapter 6. But when Solomon built the temple, the name Zion was interchangeable with Jerusalem. And you could think of it this way. Mount Zion was the, the place of the worship of God, and Jerusalem was the place of the community of God, right? The place to worship God, the community of God. Zion, Jerusalem. That's why they're interchangeable, this new city, the city of the living God, right? I love it. It says the city of the living God. It's not the God who was and is not. It's the God who was and is and will be, right? It's eternal. Like you're here. You're in an eternal home. This lasts forever. This God is still working. It is heavenly because it is the city Abraham was looking for in chapter 11 that has foundations. Verse 10. And this is where we, again, are now spiritually. We're not yet fully there. Right? So he says, you're not at Sinai, the place that you know, can be touched and all the terror of God, but you are here in the new city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now here's the big deal about the new home. God is dwelling with his people with no separation. So instead of averting our eyes from the terror of God, instead, as both Isaiah 60 and Revelation 22 proclaim, the Lord shall be your light. 
Think about that for a second, the distance and the difference between Sinai and Zion, between Sinai and New Jerusalem, between where we were, where they were, and where they are. Before, you, had to, you couldn't even look at God. You didn't want to hear, hear from God. Now our dwelling place is with God, with God, with no terror. But instead, what should have been terror-inducing, fear-inducing, is joy-inducing. He is our light, right? He is our light. He is our sustenance. He is our life. Reminds me, the other day I was going for a run, and it was really sunshiny. It's that weird time in Iowa where we get like a week of July, and then it'll go back to being normal spring. You know what I'm talking about? Like it's, but you know, if you survive the Iowa winter, like the sunshine is just like, oh, you just want to drink it. It's so good. But I remember just standing there in the sun and thinking, I was just overwhelmed with emotion, thinking, man, how amazing it feels to have the warmth of the sun on your skin. How much better will it be to be in the presence of God with God as our light, with God as our hope, with God as our joy? What an amazing future that is for us saints. And this is complete freedom. In Galatians chapter 4, 26, it says the Jerusalem above is free. But the point is we're finally home. Like this is where we are. We are home with God in relationship now and with complete, complete relationship with no distractions and with, with no weaknesses in the future. But the big deal is now God is approachable, right? God is approachable. Don't miss this. The Lord is with his people. He will never leave or forsake us. He dwells in us and we will dwell with him. And, and one of the things that this can do for us is some of you, maybe you grew up in an environment that was very legalistic, or maybe you just naturally trend towards legalism. And you might have trusted in Christ, but you're still trying to orient your relationship around guilt and fear, like your constant response to God is he's, he's going to smite me. Like, it's, I, I did something wrong. He's, he's going to... Listen, you keep yourself at a distance from God. You hesitate to pray with joy and, and with honesty. You hesitate sometimes. You're even... You pull back from the community of faith because you think, I'm not good enough to be there. Like, this is not the reality of where you are in Christ. Do you hear me? He is not unapproachable. He invites us to come to him. You are not at the foot of the mountain where you have to fear dying from going close to God. God says, come, come in. It's new home. When you go to God as a Christian, you're not going as a foreigner. You're going as though you are home. That's where you belong. And we lose this joy when we think that we can make this world, this place, this land of sojourn, right? This land that we're passing through, we lose that joy when we think that we can make this place so good that we find our completeness or fulfillment in things here. And we can't. Our real home is with the Lord. And it starts here, but ultimately it culminates in new heaven, new earth. You also have a new family. Not only do you have a new home, you have a new family. And there are a couple statements that he makes about our new family. One is this, to myriads or to innumerable angels in festive gathering or in festal gathering. 
And this is a little bit weird for us because I don't know, like, we get weird on angels. We either have a terrible idea of what they might be or we just refuse to talk about them or think about them at all, right? We're like, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, there's angels, but whatever. But angels are actually pretty important. The author of Hebrews in the first couple chapters actually says, hey, they're pretty important. But it also means that we have a much bigger family than we thought. We're made of God's heavenly family or cosmic family, right? The angelic beings, the spiritual beings, spirit beings, and his earthly family. And so our home also is a new family, the reality of where we are. It's not just the angels are these foreign supernatural creatures that we have nothing to do with. Hebrews chapter 2 says that the law was being delivered by angels, right? When you look in the Old Testament, you can see those echoes of that. But also that they're ministering spirits sent to uh, those who will inherit salvation, right? We're on the same team. They're cheering us on. Like, they're real, right? Sometimes we get a little wonky on what that actually means, but, uh, but they, they are real. And one day, we will be celebrating with them. But think about this. I say this a lot, and we need to get grasp this spiritually. When we join our song together, we're actually joining into what the angels are constantly doing, bringing praise to the Lord, honoring Christ. So we just jump into the stream of what's already going on in the heavenlies. It's amazing. We worship with the angels now as we gather and eternally when he makes all things new. But he also says this, the author also says this, not just with angels in festal gathering. But, but here's the other part of that, festal gathering. It's a party. Sinai, not a party, right? Sinai was more like a wake. It was, it was dark. It was, it was not this. This is party, right? Joy, festivity. But he says, with innumerable angels and to the assembly of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Whose names are written in heaven. Remember chapter 11? Remember the cloud of witnesses? Everybody who was approved by their faith but did not receive what was promised? Right? In, in this life? We're with them. Right? They're with us. We're on the same team. All believers through all times. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. God completes that work of bringing his family together. And that's why the author of Hebrews even mentions like, hey, let's not neglect uh, meeting together. Let's not neglect coming together. Why would we look forward to something eternally that we don't look forward to practicing now? Right? And it should bring a, a, an, an amount of conviction to our hearts that if these people who are in Christ are going to be our family forever, we should be a little bit more comfortable with other believers now. We should be a little bit more intent on spending time with one another now to encourage one another so that sin doesn't harden our hearts. We have a new family, right? We are family. Amen? In Christ, we are family. We are brothers and sisters. We have a new home. We have a new family. We also have a new status, a new status. How do we know we have a new status? Well, he says, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to God, who is the judge of all. So he starts there. That's one of the descriptors of our status. God, who is the judge of all. In the context of this verse, it's a blessing. It's a blessing, right? We may look at, you know, God as judge as something that's terrifying. But in, in this situation, it's a blessing. Because Scripture makes it clear that God alone judges our works, right? But those who are in Christ, 
have their names written in the book of life. God has judged us to be righteous in Christ, and our names are there, inscribed in his book of life in Revelation chapter 20. Hebrews 10.19 reminds believers that we have confidence to come to God through Jesus Christ, right? We have a new status as believers. Hebrews 9.27 and 28 emphasize that our judgment is in Christ, who will bring salvation to those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And then the second thing that we see here is not only God the judge of all, but to the spirits of righteous people made perfect. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now think deeply about this one. Hebrews 10, 14 says, By one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. This is, again, all saints in all times. Hebrews eleven forty tells us that all those Old Testament saints in the hall of faith would not even be made perfect without us, right? We're on the same team there, right? And look what a mess they were. Brandon and I talked on, on one of the uh, podcasts recently about, like, how did some of those people in chapter 11 even make the list, right? Because some of them weren't faithful, but they'd still get thrown in there. Like, their faith was imperfect. There's a lot of guys on that list that you're like, man, I feel like my chances would be pretty good, right? But they're there, right? Their destiny is our destiny. The foundation is the same. The foundation is the finished work of Christ. But one thing we need to think about with this, right? We have, a, we have a new family. We have a new status. Is that some of us, some of us now tend to operate. Maybe you're not like this. Praise God if you're not. I, I sometimes trend this way. Sometimes we forget that even though we have a new status, we haven't been perfected yet, right? So then we start to demand the same things from other Christians that we ourselves expect you know, theologically or operationally. And uh, we have to deal with the reality that none of us are perfect now, right? Can I get an amen on that, please? Amen. Okay, good. None of us are perfect now. But some, some Christians right now, especially in the last couple of years, have spent a great deal of time fighting with other believers over various doctrines and positions that aren't essential, that are not essential doctrines. It's either opinion or just disagreement on certain places of Scripture. Maybe, maybe we should give thanks that God deals with our own idiosyncrasies and our own faults patiently as He is making us perfect and be kind to each other as believers, right? We all have the same status. There's not a degree of Christian. You're not like, I'm a baby Christian, I'm a super Christian. You're a Christian. You're in Christ or you're not in Christ. Yes, we, but we tend to like parse people up, right? You're always being perfected over life. You're being sanctified and you will be glorified. We have a new status. But then also we have new promises. And this is when he says, and to Jesus, a mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Hebrews 8, 6 and 9, 15 basically tell us this. Jesus has delivered on better promises specifically the promise of the eternal inheritance by redeeming us from our transgressions against the first covenant. If you look at 8, 6, and 9, 15, like all the sins against the first covenant, right? Jesus delivers on the eternal inheritance on our behalf because he kept the law and he died on our behalf. And by faith, we receive that gift, that status, but also the promises 
that eternally we never have to deal with our sin again in that way. Does that make sense? Like we, it's done. The promise of eternal inheritance. The promises made by the law we could never achieve. That's the point. That's why Jesus had to do what he did. We could not continually make sacrifices enough to outpace our sin. And as some of you might, might think like, you, maybe you're caught in the mindset, some Christians get caught in the mindset of thinking, if I do more good things, then I don't really have to deal with my bad things. I can just do more good things and God will forget about my bad things. That's not how it works either, right? There's nothing that you could do to make God so pleased that he would be like, man, that's way better than what my son did. Right? Isn't that this terrible thinking? To think that I can outpace somehow to where God, the Father's going to look past Christ and be like, I don't know, that was really good. It's not. Like our sufficiency is in Christ. It's not in our performance. You can't outperform your sin. You can't. But Christ shed his blood for sin, entered the presence of God, and through him our sin has been taken, our salvation secured. And then the author says, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. To understand this fully, you have to consult Genesis chapter 4. And I think this is amazing and beautiful. And sometimes when we read this verse, this verse pops up and it's really the only place in Scripture where this mention is made and it's very confusing upon first glance. But if you read Genesis chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, God's punishment to Cain, he delivers is this. He says, you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. You will be a restless wanderer. This brings us full circle to one of the main points here regarding the old covenant and the new. That the blood of Abel cries out for vengeance and for penalty. And the penalty that the blood of Abel reminded us of and ushered in was restless wandering from the God who created us. And boy, isn't that what we are without Christ? Restlessly wandering from our God. But the blood of Christ speaks peace and security and rest at home with our God. You see the difference? The blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel because it speaks rest instead of restless. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3. <clears throat> we who believed entered that rest. Chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. A rest remains. Strive to enter it. See, it's about rest. Christ brings us home to an unshakable kingdom, right? To a kingdom that's not based in, in fear. Jesus will bring us home. All righteousness in this place is not ours, right? It belongs to Christ. So after all of this, <clears throat> you would think this is where God's going to close up shop and bring us home with a really sweet pep talk about how great they're doing, right? He's like, hey, you're not here, but you're here. And by the way, great job, everybody. You guys are super spectacular, and let's keep it going. That's not what he does. <laughs> so it's a little disappointing because it feels like you hit this, this middle section right here, like 22 through 24. You're like, yes, yes, yes. And then it says this. See that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. And you're like, right? It's like up, up, up. 
What? Why? Why the warning? And so the third section of this is don't reject the warning, right? And it's really, it's the unshakable kingdom. Don't reject the unshakable kingdom. Verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse the one who's speaking. So now it goes back to Sinai and the voice that thundered out from the mountain. But it also goes to Zion and the voice that speaks a better word than Abel's blood. It's the same God. <clears throat> the voice that was at Sinai, the voice that was at Sinai <clears throat> is God. The blood of Christ is God, right? Do you get what's saying here? It's the same voice. It's the same warning. The reality is that there were many who were at Sinai and saw God, really saw God, but they actually ended up turning away from him and forsaking his power and his glory and his deeds to chase after sin and idolatry. They began by begging not to hear his voice, and they ended up by turning away from him altogether. And this is why I know that people don't understand what they're saying when they say they actually need proof that God exists in order to believe, right? If you meet somebody and they're like, well, maybe if God revealed himself, I'd believe. You'd be terrified, right? And you still wouldn't serve him. Think about it. The Israelites at Sinai, they saw him, and many of them still wandered away from him. They still refused to serve the God who they knew was terrifying. I mean, that concept is terrifying, that you could see the presence of God and experience the cosmic power of God and still somehow wander away thinking you can do better on your own. But it happens all the time. And the reminder in Hebrews is that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. If you reject Jesus, you reject that God. To reject Christ is to reject the warning at Sinai. That same God. In the beginning of Hebrews, the reality is there. Jesus, the radiance of his glory, the exact expression of his nature, and he still speaks. Look at verse 26. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he was promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. And this shows us, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I think I'm running out of gas. <clears throat> Lord, help me. This shows that some in this commu community were dangerously close to the attitude in Exodus 20. That's what the author is bringing this up for, right? Some are growing weak, and they're in danger of maybe proving that it was never true that they believed in Christ in the first place. Maybe they're hanging with the community, and the persecution has got them in a place where they're willing to walk away. The Israelites who rejected God's revelation and mediation did not escape, and this warning from heaven is tied to a rejection of the whole revelation of Christ as mediator. And the author says, do not reject this. The warning is, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Verse 26. And this is uh, Old Testament reference to Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. It's a promise to shake the heavens, the earth, and all nations. It's a prophecy about the future glory of the house of God. Verse 27. Now this expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. This is a future warning. 
This is the promise of the end of the created order as we know it. Oh, thanks, brother. I've got a bottle. I think my voice is just literally like, no, I'm done. Thank you, Danny. Appreciate you, brother. Second Peter chapter 3, Peter gives us a warning that the heavens and earth that are existing now are stored up for fire, kept until the day of judgment. Why are there so many warnings in the book of Hebrews, though, when there's so much certainty about what Christ has done and secured for his people? Here's why we still get warnings. That those who are in the midst of the assembly of even this church would not presume upon the grace of God and that we would make our calling and election sure. How many people walk into churches all over the world today presuming still that their good deeds or their status will carry them to glory? How many profess the name of Christ but are drawn into doctrine that it's contrary to the gospel and against God's holiness? We are still to warn with kindness, gently calling the church to consider the holiness of God and the reality of the coming kingdom, right? There's a warning. Don't miss the kingdom. This is real. This Jesus this new covenant, this better kingdom, they are the reality. All things which came before were the shakable things, the shadows of the substance. The thing that worries me the most about the time that we are living in is that the big push right now in our society is to create a world of our own design. Design your own gender. Make sustainable worlds. Design your own relationship. Design your own universe. It's one in which we use words like sustainable of an earth that we know is passing away. And then we create entire new technological worlds and new personas. We call them meta. And a lot of young people, in case you don't know, like all these fake worlds, these virtual worlds that exist. I heard an interview with Keanu Reeves talking about the Matrix, and he said one young teenager said to him, why, do you, why does it matter if it's real? Why does it matter if the world is real? That's where we're at right now. For many people, it doesn't matter if it's real as long as it feels real to them. But people need to be warned. This kingdom is shakable. This world is shakable. God will shake it. The voice from heaven will call. Jesus will return, Second Thessalonians it says, with his angels in holy fire, executing vengeance on all those who disobey the gospel. I mean, it's, it's a hard warning. Maybe we're in this position now because we have watched every generation before talk about the real world and make promises about the utopia that we can create, and we have repeatedly watched that experiment fail. You could never make here what only God can usher in. This is all shakable. The kingdom of God is not. Why the warning? Because God has not changed. Because God has not changed. Right? And we see that the very last verse says, for our God is a consuming fire. The fire that was on the mountain at Sinai is the same God now as then. That's why a warning. Don't walk away from this God. Look at Deuteronomy. Please turn with me real quick to Deuteronomy chapter 4 as, as we wrap up here. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 24 through 31. I'm not going to read them all, but I'm going to read some. Verse 24. 
for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now, if you're, if you're curious as to what Hebrews 12, 29 means, it means this. God wants his people's attention, right? The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. But look at verse 31. He will not leave you, destroy you, or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them by oath, because the Lord your God is a compassionate God. Why do we get a warning? Because the God who is a consuming fire is compassionate, and he wants us to come into relationship with him. That's why. Don't reject the warning. It's Jesus. Remember Hebrews chapter 1? It's Jesus. The whole point of the book is listen to Jesus. And Jesus warns us, don't get stuck in the fear and terror of God. Look to the unshakable kingdom that God has created in Christ His Son and come in. Serve Him. Turn to Jesus. How should we respond to this? Well, verse 28 tells us how we should respond. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us hold on to grace. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe. First of all is this. If you're in here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, repent and believe. Be saved. There's no better deal than this. All things in this life will go away. God will remain. He will create new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwell. And you only spend eternity there if you are in Christ, period. That's the point. If you don't know Christ, repent, believe, be saved. For believers, number one is this. Be grateful for what we are receiving. That's what he says. Be grateful. Hold on to it by grace. Be grateful. How much do we complain about how much we don't have? Like, how many of us are caught up in like what I don't have or I wish life was like this or I wish, th- I wish this was better. I wish I had more. You know, and those are very real desires. Those are very real reactions. But we have to ask the question, are we trying to build a kingdom that will burn away or are we living for an unshakable kingdom? But be grateful for what we have in Christ, the author of Hebrews says. And second is this, we should offer acceptable worship. Are we concerned with holiness in our lives? Are we living as though we have been bought with a price and we serve a holy God? You know, the consuming fire of God is either going to burn us in holiness, it's either going to refine us, or we will stand in judgment. That's the, only, that's the only way that goes. But knowing God's character draws us to being changed over time so that we might live in holiness. We serve God with reverence and awe. We'll get examples of what that looks like specifically in living next week when we get into chapter 13. But it ends with this. Our God is a consuming fire. Brothers and sisters, let us remember, He is powerful and He is holy, but He is patient and He is kind and compassionate. We should be thankful that our God is a consuming fire, that He is eternal, and He has prepared for us an unshakable kingdom to be grasped onto by faith in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, I just pray that we would, uh, would honor you by the way that we live. Lord, we know that we cannot earn your grace because Christ has earned our salvation. But we do know that an appropriate response to the salvation that we've been given in Christ is to live 
with godliness, with holiness, with righteousness, with love, with joy. Lord, help us to do that as we go today. It's in Christ's name we pray.